Y'all can talk about all these viruses, and that's good, but you can't forget the main one. It's plaguing us, bro. Down with the colonial virus. 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 Uhuru! Welcome to the People's War Radio Show. I'm Dr. Matsumela Odom. And I'm Mwambi Tangu. Uhuru means freedom in Swahili, and freedom is on our minds 24-7. This summer and fall, in Bethesda, Maryland, the African community's campaign to protect a hundreds of years old African burial ground has been reignited. This struggle provides another vantage point of the anti-colonial struggle Africans have been waging around the world in the wake of the May 25th murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The Moses African Cemetery in Bethesda dates back at least to the 18th century. It has been defiled by decades of development with hundreds of bodies laying under the cement of a parking lot. One group, the Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition has waged a struggle in defense of the community, their ancestors, and the land. Today, we have Marsha Coleman Adebayo and Reverend Sagoon Adebayo to discuss these matters. Our first guest, Marsha Coleman Adebayo, is a Pulitzer Prize-nominated author of No Fear, a whistleblower's triumph over corruption and retaliation against the EPA. Having worked for the Environmental Protection Agency for almost 20 years, she blew the whistle on the endangerment of African miners in occupied Azania, South Africa. She is a member of the Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition and is working to stop the desecration of the Moses African Cemetery by the government and other big developers in Maryland. Marcia is joined by Reverend Sagoon Adebayo, her husband. Also a member of the coalition, he is the pastor of Macedonia Baptist Church in Bethesda. Welcome, Marcia, and welcome, Sagoon. Uhuru, Marcia. Throughout the United States and elsewhere, there are plenty of historic African burial grounds. Most notably, in the early 1990s, the remnants of an African cemetery was found near Wall Street. When I lived and taught in the Rio Grande Valley of Texas, I helped to organize an annual Juneteenth celebration at the Black Cemetery in Edinburgh, Texas. But the Moses African Cemetery is even more significant than many of those burial grounds. Can you explain the historical significance of the Moses African Cemetery? I wouldn't necessarily say that it's more important. I'd say that it's equally as important because I think the lives and the significance of all of those earlier Africans who who came to this country are of equal significance. Um, And so I wouldn't sort of place one uh, cemetery over another cemetery. Um, But I would say that Moses African Cemetery, I think, should actually be um, uh, nominated or should, you know, would definitely qualify uh, to, to be a United Nations World Heritage Site. And I think one of the reasons why it should be nominated or should become a United Nations World Heritage Site 
is because in many ways it symbolizes the relationship between uh, the Africans who came to this country, particularly to this area of Bethesda, Maryland, in the late 1700s, not too long after the 1619 um, arrival of the first Africans in colonial America, they were brought to this part of the world for the same reason um, that they had um, kidnapped them and taken them to Jamestown. And that was because of a burgeoning um, sort of tobacco, um, uh, the whole issue around tobacco commerce. And of course, in 1619, uh, you know, these merchants or these, these kidnappers, they had decided that they wanted to produce tobacco, not only for the domestic market, but also for the international market. Uh, you know, about 70, 80 years later, the seeds from what were eventually developed in Jamestown or in Hampton, Virginia, made their way to Bethesda, Maryland. And of course, the white settlers here, um, you know, the occupiers here, um, you know, had to, they felt they had to kidnap Africans um, and bring them to this part of the world, to to Bethesda, Maryland, um, for a couple of reasons. One was because of the technology, agricultural technology that existed in Africa. Two, because of the medicinal technology that had developed in Africa. Remember, we have the three first universities in the world are founded in Africa, in Tunisia, in Egypt, um, and in what we now call Mali. And so there's just an amazing amount of wealth and renaissance going on in Africa around the time of the mass uh, kidnapping or what I prefer to call transfer of human capital to the United States. And, and later, of course, we'll get into the breeding issue. But so, so they come to this country and they're being forced um, to bring all this intellectual capital and intelligence to this area in terms of how to grow these plants. But when they died, they were dumped in an area that we now refer to as ancient Moses. Um, this is an area that was surrounded by three different Europeans like to call them plantations. I, I prefer to call them what they what they were, which was deaf camps. And so you've got three different deaf camps in this area, actually four, a smaller one as well. The councilman, the shoemaker, the Loughborough, and the Posey deaf camps. And so when Africans died on one of these deaf camps, they dumped them in this area that we now call ancient Moses. And so, so, so you have all this dumping of African bodies in this area after emancipation. A beloved, a benevolent society bought this plot of land or these plots of land, and they began to give the African population in this area, you know, um, burials that were dignified and and respectful, um, and so. Moses represents a South-South burial ground, which, as I understand it, is extremely rare. And we haven't really found another example of this, where you actually have the first generation of Africans from African kingdoms, Kartem Bornu, the Ghana kingdom, Yoruba kingdom, um, Songhai. And then on top of the burials, 
of those uh, Africans from from African kingdoms, you now have the first and second and third generation of Africans who survived that Holocaust who are now buried on top of these Africans from these various African kingdoms. So it's very historically significant. And as I and it is the only one that I know of at this point. So so that's one of the reasons why it's so so significant. Uhuru Marsha, thank you for being on the show. I wanted to ask you, what is the Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition? How was it formed and when was it formed? Well, the Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition is a group of people from various organizations who came together to struggle around the issue of the desecration of a sacred African burial ground called Moses, ancient Moses, and what we call the newer Moses. Um, And um, it was, I think, cemented. Um, and actually became a coalition because the county, Montgomery County, in Maryland, made the decision to cover up all the to cover up the history of this, not only the burial ground but the history of the community that survived the Holocaust and then went on to live in um, Bethesda. So, as you may or may not know, Bethesda is one of the wealthiest communities in the United States. And the wealth of this county was built upon the blood um, and the sweat of the of Africans who came here from African kingdoms and later their descendants. Um, they were the ones who built all the roads and the infrastructure. They were the ones who were employed or not employed, but worked in the quarries. They actually built the bomb shelter in the White House. They built the first colored hospital in the air. I mean, this is an absolutely amazing history, an amazing community. And because white supremacy cannot admit, acknowledge um, the kind of brilliance that existed, not only all over the country in Black communities, but in specifically in this community, it did what it has done for hundreds of years, which is just simply to cover up and to disappear this community. So this community was disappeared and around the early 1960s. And once the community was disappeared, then the county, along with private businesses, decided to desecrate the graves so that no one would ever know that Black people lived in this part of Bethesda. And so first they got rid of every single Black household And then once they removed, they ethnically cleansed, I should say. I really have a problem with the word gentrification. So once they ethnically cleared um, uh, this, um, cleansed this area, um, then they they set in on the cemetery and and basically they steamrolled. They took basically a huge, um, what was that, a steamroller or... um, Backhole. Yeah, not a backhole, but but anyway, and they basically, you know, um, scattered human remains for almost maybe a half mile throughout this area that we call ancient Moses and Moses. Um, And then on one part of the um, cemetery, they actually locked in the remains using asphalt. Then they placed a parking lot on top of it. 
And then the other side of it, basically, it was just left to grow wild um, until very recently when they desecrated, they literally brought in like a hundred dump trucks and they emptied out this entire area. So, uh, and took it to a, a landfill. So we, we decided once we began to uncover this incredible history and we realized that the county was not prepared to tell the truth about the community, we started reaching out to organizations throughout the Washington, Virginia, and D.C. area, anyone who would listen to us, quite frankly, and starting to tell them these, the story of this community. And I must tell you, we're still very much into the research of this community because the community disappeared, um, because the community was basically, there was a, basically a genocide of this community. You know, we are still doing primary research. We've been able to find some descendants who have been extremely helpful. Uh, we've been able to find historic records. We've been able to find to do a lot of research. But there's still so much more that we don't know. And, and because the county in collusion with private businesses have made it almost impossible for us to really examine a lot of the materials a lot of these materials are are going to be vanquished. They're going. They're going to. They're irretrievable. It means that mankind, womankind, will never quite understand exactly what happened in this community. And that was an intentional decision that was made, like the last three or four months, not like twenty or thirty years ago. And the last three or four months, that decision was made to destroy biological material to destroy artifacts, to destroy what was left of human remains, so that there's just information that we will never know at this point. We will never know, period, because of decisions by Montgomery County officials. Yeah, thanks for that. Now, Chairman O'Malley Eschatella visited you all up there. Am I right? Yes. How was that visit? It was fabulous. Um, he met us at the cemetery, and... Some of our members were able to make it out and we were able to ask questions and begin to make the connection between what we're, we're struggling with here in Bethesda and what other communities around the country are struggling around land theft, around desecration of sacred grounds, around ultimately the issue of imperialism, cultural imperialism, white supremacy. So it was an, it was an incredible um, it was an incredible visit. Yeah, thanks for that. Because in fact, it was Chairman O'Malley Eschatella who brought this struggle to our attention and suggested that we talk to you yeah. uh, to, to help get the word out about uh, this issue. In relation to this struggle, he has noted that it's an example of how uh, colonial white power sees us as a conquered people. Right. Uh, what do you think about that? Yeah, he's absolutely right. I mean, this is definitely an example of the fact that we lost power. We lost power when we left Africa. And now we are colonial citizens. I don't know if that's the correct word, um, because that's a contradiction. But we are certainly colonized. And that means that we do not have the kind of political power to protect our sacred spaces. We don't have the political power to protect our children against police we don't have the political power to protect ourselves. 
in the context of our school system. So that's what it means to be a conquered people, is that you lose political power to to protect what's most important to you. And And he's absolutely right. I mean, we're not even able to go into the cemetery. We literally look at the cemetery through a fence that's located on the grounds of McDonald's. And so if that is not the symbolic representation of a conquered people, I don't know what it what would be. So, yeah, I mean, he's, he's absolutely right. We're colonized. And, of course, in the United States, it reminds me very much of what they had in Africa, which was what they call indirect and direct rule. In a country like Nigeria, which is where my husband is from, uh, the British had this concept of indirect rule, which means which meant that they they ruled the population through uh, chiefs and and bureau and African bureaucrats and and other people that had sold out to the to the to the British um, to, to you know to, to England in in the, in the French part of the the one the part of Africa West Africa that was conquered Central Africa that was conquered by the French it was more direct where they you know they had their foot on your neck and they didn't sort of go through that extra layer of going through African bureaucrats or chiefs. Um, so definitely, if you look at American colonialism of African people, um, this, you know, this, this is definitely, you know, sort of direct rule. Um, and of course, you know, you get some indirect rule when you get people like Obama, or whatever, and people are, you know, sort of seeing him as being sort of the viceroy of the people who are really in charge but to a large extent, this is direct rule and, and their boots are on our necks. And as such, you know, we do not have the power to protect even our relatives um, who, um, you know, who should at least be allowed to lie in peace after being tortured on earth by uh, white supremacy. Reverend Adebayo, thanks for being on the program. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Uh, you offer a very uh, interesting perspective of uh, being born in West Africa, but uh, an activist uh, over in the uh, DMV area. So uh, we really value you and, and your church, uh, the Macedonia Baptist Church. What are some ways that the Macedonia Baptist Church has contributed to uh, the struggle here? Well, actually, the, the struggle began uh, you know, in Macedonia Baptist Church. Uh, you had asked Marsha earlier when... You know, when was BACC established? Uh, when we first came to the knowledge of this uh, displaced community and the uh, and, and the cemetery that was desecrated, the Moses Cemetery back in the in the mid sixties. Uh, you know, it was you know through uh, a hearing, a public hearing uh, by you know the the, the planning board. Uh, the, 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 it's called the Maryland, uh, you know, National Capital Parks and Planning, you know, Commission. Uh, that uh, we first came to the knowledge that uh, there might have been um, a burial site, uh, because as Marcia said, that had pretty much been erased from the, the literature, even from memory. And 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 so they they had mentioned that uh, you know there was an alleged cemetery. So a member of a church who grew up on River Road, 
uh, you know, his family was one of those that was uh, displaced or disappeared. I said, no, this is not legged. Uh, that he used to play in the cemetery. He and his, uh, you know, brothers and friends, uh, since they were not allowed in public parks or public places, you know, that was their playground. Uh, and so that's how it started. And, uh, you know, we established the social justice ministry in the church. You know, Marsha, uh, you know, was appointed by my our former pastor before I became pastor as the president of the social justice ministry. And that's how we got involved and started, uh, you know, trying to dig out information. Uh, and finally, we found out that uh, the, the county, especially the planning board, had been trying uh, seriously, you know, to, to hide information, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, to, you know, create ob- obfuscation uh, until they finally had to succumb, uh, you know, to the truth that indeed those parcels of land, you know, had, you know, barriers of African people, uh, you know, two, or two of the parcels, you know, starting in 1911. And then, of course, by the history that we've now dug up, there are still even more extensive areas that uh, we believe, you know, you know, you know, held the, you know, the bodies of our ancestors. So that's how, that's how we began. And so we came together and said, well, uh, this should only be limited to, you know, Macedonia Baptist Church. This is a struggle, you know, for people that love justice and righteousness. And so a lot of people came around us, you know, white, black, young, and old. And that's how we, you know, formalized and, uh, you know, created a structure that we called the Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU. Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today are Marsha Coleman Adebayo and Reverend Sagoon Adebayo. Reverend Adebayo, you were born and raised in West Africa. How do you feel about being a person born and raised in West Africa, but being a part of this struggle? And what would you say to people on the other, to Africans on the other side of the Atlantic about getting involved in this struggle? Well, it's amazing. Um, I I believe and we believe that there's no accident in, in human life. And so we are placed on this, uh, on this earth for a purpose. So for me to have been the, become the pastor, you know, when all of this is unfolding, I believe that it's, uh, you know, ordained, you know, by, you know, by, by our God. And so when you look at the history of our people, uh, Nigeria used to be called the Slave Coast. Uh, you, know, you know, Ghana was the Gold Coast, Nigeria was the Slave Coast. Sure and so, 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 so we, we, I, I know and we know that many of uh, you know, the people that were brought from Africa uh, into this uh, you know, forced uh, you know, displacement from their homeland uh, many of them came out of Nigeria. Many of them came out of my tribe. Uh, many of uh, the African people in Cuba, in Brazil, are my people, the Yoruba people. Right. Uh, Ashe. Amen. Ashe. So I, I know that this could have been my relatives, distant relatives. And so for every African, you know, both here and abroad, uh, they need to know that they are relatives, you know, from 400 years ago or, or more. Uh, could have been part of uh, of the ancestors, 
you know, that, that lay, you know, beneath the, the parking lot whose, uh, whose uh, place of rest is now being desecrated. So I, I do hope that, uh, you know, they will know that uh, we, we, you know, culturally we, we give a great, uh, you know, relevance and, uh, and honor and respect, you know, to the burial place of our, of our people. And so I'm, I'm calling upon them to, you know, get in touch with us, get involved and spread the word. Uh, it's, uh, we've been at it now for four years. It's been a long, you know, difficult struggle. But, uh, you know, as long as we have breath and we have life in us, we'll keep on uh, pushing and, uh, you know, believe that at the end we will attain victory. Ashe. 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 And, 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 and as Chairman O'Malley Yashatella says, Africans... We're forced on the boats. Africans got off the boat, right? That boat can't turn us into African Americans. So, uh, undoubtedly, uh, we are uh, still uh, connected. Yeah, we are. Uh, we are Africans. Right, right. And something that I'll just note: I know that they've done archaeological digs in that whole area, and uh, you know they find cowrie shells, they find beads, they find figurines that are probably used for ancestor worship, things like that. And one thing that we know as African people, regardless of what we want to call it, right, Ifa or, or Christianity or whatever, is that we honor our ancestors. This really is um, uh, a necessary, you know, a necessary struggle for us to really honor uh, our ancestors and not let our ancestors be disrespected. So well, thank you. I know, you know, we, if I might just say this, uh, as you said, we, we believe that we are, you know, connected intricately, you know, with our ancestors, you know, in the spirit world. I mean, this is one of the reasons that when Africans get together for, for meetings, the first we do is a polybation, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with polybation because we believe that they are with us, uh, they never left us, and they are, they are watching over us. So we polybation to honor them, you know, to ask for their permission you know, to, to engage in the conversation that people are about to have. Uh, and so by pouring libation, we're keeping their memories, we're keeping their memories alive. And we, you know, know that uh, they, they're always with us. You know, it's uh, most like what the Bible calls a great cloud of witness that surrounds us. So they're always around us and uh, we can get away from them. Uh, they won't let us, you know, get away from them. So... So we need to we need to pay them the respect and the honor uh, for the sacrifice they made for their suffering. Uh, that you know now that you know we, even though we're not totally free, but uh, you know we've we've come some way, you know from from being subjected to just extreme cruelty and barbarism mm -hmm. of uh, of uh, you know of you know white uh, you know white supremacy. Oh, thanks for that. Yeah, I thought it's kind of, yeah, it's important that we get the African voice out there because so many Africans don't believe that um, that they have that they have anything that they're connected in very real way to what's happening in this country, and so you know his voice in the struggle has been so important in terms of making sure that our brothers and sisters from the continent understand that their DNA is also planted in the soil in America. 2019 marked 400 years since the first kidnapped Africans were trafficked by European pirates, 
to the Chesapeake Bay area of Virginia and Maryland. Can you explain a little further the history of the colonial enslavement of the Africans in that region and how that relates to this burial site? I must admit, I'm not, I'm an Africanist. I'm not an African-Americanist. And so, um, you know, so I'm actually a little bit more comfortable talking about the history of Ghana and Nigeria than I am in terms of Jamestown. But um, but my understanding, um, um, and I love the fact that you're using decolonized language. Yeah, that, yeah, the pirates and the, you know, and the, you know, basically the criminals that were brought that came from Europe and, in fact, you know, kidnapped um, this boatload of of Africans. And I've been to Jamestown a million times, I think, at this point. I mean, because so much of the history of River Road sort of starts in that Jamestown, uh, Hampton area that we've we've spent a lot of time in in that area. Um, but I think what's important in terms of telling the story about River Road is 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 how. Um, businesses began to um, once once the Europeans had had developed um, a varietal of the tobacco seed, um, the the spreading of that technology and and of that seed uh, was almost exponential at that point. It was it was it was a fairly um, smooth transition from Jamestown Hampton. To this part of of, um, of River Road of, of Bethesda, and all along the trail, you know, you see the development establishment of tobacco plantations. It was primarily at that point for the European market, although Americans, obviously white Americans, um, uh, began to you know distribute and sell that um, that tobacco in the United States as well. Um, but once it developed in this area. There were, as I said, four different deaf camps that grew up fairly quickly. Um, and in fact, they used to roll um, these huge, uh, um, almost, uh, I'm not sure what you'd call them. They would sort of wrap all the tobacco together and they'd literally roll it down River Road all the way down to, to Georgetown, you know, to the Georgetown area of Washington, D.C., and obviously from Georgetown, which was a big shipping port, then they could take it over to Europe, to Manchester and to Liverpool and uh, other parts of uh, England and, and Europe. Um, and so obviously the demand, the, the tobacco is obviously very labor intensive. And there was obviously a need for um, an abundance of not only just labor, and that's one of the points that I think is so important. It wasn't just the labor. It was the technology. It was the intellectual ability. It was the question of how do you survive in a semi-tropical um, environment? What kinds of medicines are needed, particularly in Washington, D.C., which was very swampy at that time? So we can imagine in terms of mosquito infestations here. Um, all of this technology in terms of agricultural production, in terms of um, but, uh, tropical medicine, um, hydrology, all of this technology was, was, was readily available in Africa. And it was one of the reasons I think that Africa in particular was sort of 
targeted as the as as the as the continent and, and particularly west and central africa too as 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 the area that was targeted for this kind of what i consider the largest transfer of human knowledge in world history where you have over you know was it 10 million people um depending upon who you read who were literally um kidnapped and brought to the united states not simply because of their how strong they were and in many cases remember the majority of Africans who came here came here as children, so they weren't very strong at all. But it was because of the technology and the knowledge that had been developed in Africa that made African people such an important resource, human resource, um, for the you know for the um, for the kidnappers um, in this country in this part of the world. Um, so anyway, and so so you have this incredible transfer of human capital human intellect to the United States. And, and then you begin to have, um, you know, the creation of wealth. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, d- I just wanted to add to that. Cause you're absolutely correct. If you go back and you look at those ads, right. It wasn't just a snatch and grab. It was, no. uh, it, was uh, it, was, it, it, it was a targeted plan. I mean, they'd say, uh, you know, an 18 year old African male, from the rice growing exactly. uh, uh, people of the Angola coast, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and then then that's when they wanted because they wanted to get uh, big bucks for it. <laughs> it really expanded once the uh, British Royal African Company was created, right. and 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 then after that they uh, privatized the industry uh, and it expanded even more. And you're correct; it's it's investors. From Virginia and Maryland, uh, uh, and it's uh, farmers from Virginia and Maryland. They didn't know how to do uh, any of this stuff. It was honestly all stolen uh, African and indigenous knowledge. It was that guy John Rolfe himself. You know, the big myth is that they came from England, but John Rolfe and those guys came from the Caribbean and the West Indies and South South America. They went down there, and then they brought with them. Uh, the knowledge that they had learned from Africans and from indigenous people, well, so that they could, like, like, like so, things, right? They, exactly, so, so, so that they could mm-hmm. create a create a market here, which would then um, take over, uh, uh, you know, the African world, the indigenous world, and even their Spanish competitors. So, so thank you, thank you for that. That's that's so uh, very important. As the enslavement of Africans expanded into the deep south. The region of Maryland and Virginia became a major site for the forced breeding of enslaved Africans. What do you know about that? Yeah, you know, I'm really struggling with the word breeding, to be honest with you, because we're really talking about corporate corporate level rape. Right. Um, And and so around 1807, 1808, as you know, with with the termination or really the trickling, because there was still a lot of Africans who were being smuggled out of the kidnapped and smuggled out after seven, after 1807 or 1808 when quote unquote their transatlantic slave trade or what we call the largest human trafficking trade ever in, in the world history whatever when when that is supposed when that supposedly ends but even before 1807 or 1808 you you know you had a problem with this very 
not clumsy, but, you know, very difficult trade that was dependent upon the shipping industry, upon, you know, the insurance industry, because, of course, Africans were insured and, you know, the, the, the not well, the captains would insure their quote unquote their cargo. And then, of course, getting paid if the cargo. I mean, it, it was just a very clumsy and difficult. And of course, ships were constantly breaking down. And and then, of course, weather was unpredictable. And and so so even before 1807, 1808, um, this 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 system of using African women's bodies or what they call the enslaved womb had taken hold in the United States, that it was just much more efficient, economically efficient, so to speak, um, to actually create a a system where you were actually producing um, Africans on this side of the Atlantic as opposed to the laborious process and and the treacherous process of actually bringing Africans from the from Africa, and I, you know I just have to also admit that of course when you're bringing Africans who, you know who had grown up in freedom and then bringing them into the environment of people who are now you know um, being held in a barbaric system, you know it there were all kinds of political and economic and sociological problems involved with that. And so for a lot of, for a, for a myriad of reasons, this domestic industry of, of corporate rape and breeding developed. And at one point it was clearly in competition um, with the system of bringing Africans because you had the domestic breeders who wanted to protect their own industry from the Africans who were being brought in from overseas, Right. And, and in my mind, that's what really happens in many ways in 1807, 1808, is that the domestic industry wins out over, um, over the, 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 um, the industry that wanted to continue to bring Africans in on these boats. Uh, and so you begin after 1807, 1808, particularly in Washington, Virginia, and Maryland, which were sort of carved out by the Planters Association of being sort of the three states that would produce um, a large number of the Africans who would then be sold um, um, down south um, to, uh, to, into, that barbar- into, the bar- into the European barbaric system of, 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 of kidnapping. And so on River Road, so, 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 so as I talked a little bit before about how profitable tobacco is, but, 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 but also tobacco has, the, the crop itself has this almost uh, terminator factor to it too, because uh, tobacco is very difficult on the soil. It depletes the phosphorus, it, the nitrates. It, it, it's a very difficult soil to grow for a long period of time. And because Europeans weren't able to rotate the crops like they were able to rotate because of the private property system here, they weren't able to rotate crops the way they could in Africa, the soil became depleted. And interestingly enough, on River Road, you get the soil depletion happening around the same time as the ending of the transatlantic um, trafficking trade. And so at least we know that there is one really large 
uh, deaf camp owner named uh, Councilman. Uh, John Councilman and his his brother, I think, uh, William Councilman. And, and as the soil is depleting and tobacco is no longer providing the same kinds of yields, they clearly go into a different direction. They choose a different direction. And so when we looked up the uh, what they call the U.S. Census slave schedule, of 1850, because remember Africans were considered property, so they, so the U.S. government taxed these people on how many Africans um, uh, they were uh, they had kidnapped. Um, so, so for example, with, with Councilman, with John Councilman, for example, you get you get this kind of asymmetrical um, uh, uh, census report where you have 120. A uh, one-year-old male, one fourteen-year-old male, one five-year-old male, and then this is where it starts to become interesting. A fourteen-year-old female, twelve-year-old female, fourteen-year-old female, thirteen-year-old uh, female, five-year-old. Fe- so, so now you start getting all these uh, young girls of childbearing age um, on what was you would have thought a tobacco plantation. Well, we know that most tobacco plantations are not primarily female because tobacco is a very difficult plant to grow. It's also a very taxing plant to harvest. So now you're getting all these little, these females, these, and then of course you get the five and the four and the three-year-olds um, that are on this quote-unquote death camp. And so we started looking at how many of these deaf camps were primarily female. And that's when, and this is, this is, this is the deaf camp that's right across from Moses African Cemetery. Another fact that we know is that about 50 to 60% of these African women bled out in childbirth. Um, so not only are these girls being raped and forced to carry babies, but this is a life sentence for them. They die. They die doing childbirth. Um, and, and, and then you can also imagine the terror um, of what these little girls endured uh, on these death camps. We have, you know, some narratives about how these monsters would actually put bags over their heads before they were gang raped and, so they couldn't, it, it's just the narratives will just literally turn your hair white um, because you just imagine what these girls who at one point were celebrated in the kingdom of Yoruba land or Kartimbur Nu and Songhai, and now they find themselves in a deaf camp on River Road in Bethesda, Maryland, and they're being raped, you know, continually. Um, and so, so, but the point is that we survived. I mean, and that to me is one of the, um, one of the parts of this story that I always have to come back to is that despite um, European barbarism, which I think is a much better term than slavery, um, despite the European you know, system of barbarism, you know, African people somehow found the resilience to survive. And after emancipation, this community 
actually developed just an incredible history of accomplishments and, and really thrived in many ways until around the late 1950s, early 60s, when there was this collusion between the county and businesses and also government that decided that um, the land that Europeans had thought was no longer useful, these Africans had shown, in fact, that they could still grow on this, that they could still make use of this land, that they could still produce on this land. And I think it forced the Europeans to take a second look. I think their success forced the European powers that be to take a second look at this land on River Road and say, wait a minute, these Africans are doing quite well on land that we thought was agriculturally unproductive and nothing could really come of it. And they're actually making this work. And so I think, so we know that there was a concerted plan. Um, And we know that uh, there was a a collusion by government officials, um, by private businesses, by the county itself, to what they call make the Negroes scatter. And so, um, so now we've got all kinds of oral reports about white men coming to homes, pulling out the father, forcing him to sign um, papers that he couldn't read. And then a week later, a group of, another group of white men would show up and force the entire family out of their homes. So this is a part of the, of, the, of the stories that we're telling. And when you talk about intergenerational wealth, I started this interview by saying that Bethesda is one of the wealthiest communities in the United States. So one of the very sad parts of this story is that the land that these Africans were forced to scatter from, to use their words, are now some of the, some of the most expensive land in the United States. Um, so for example, the person that I just referred to, whose father had, you know, made his ex on a sheet of paper and the week later, the white men came and forced the family out of the homes, that land that he stayed on, um, that they, that he had bought with the sweat of his brow and, you know, and his knowledge was just sold for $65 million, um, the land that is called Moses African Cemetery that they're determined um, to build on is probably worth about $30, $40 million. This was all Black-owned land. Wow. And Black people were forced to move off of this land with nothing, with nothing. And now, and then this land was transferred. Right, right. And there, there's even evidence uh, with the burnt down buildings that many of them were burnt out of those right. areas, correct? They were, they, you know, the, the, the clan was established around 1911 in this area. Um, and But what the clan couldn't do, government did in terms of raising taxes and coming up with all kinds of, you know, excuses for why black people had to give up their land. So they were all, basically, they were forced to scatter. And when they scattered, whites came in, took their land. And now they've all, I mean, their children's children are still benefiting from the land that Black people bought uh, with their blood. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU, Black Power 96.3 in St. Petersburg, Florida. 
Our guests today are Marsha Coleman Adebayo and Reverend Sagoon Adebayo. Reverend Adebayo, are there any parting words that you'd like to share? Well, um, as you said before, you know, Macedonia celebrated this 100th anniversary uh, earlier this year, just before the outbreak of the pandemic in our region. And so when, uh, when you saw a document that say 100 slash 370, you know, we discovered that, you know, Macedonia is built on, uh, on, on a, what we consider to be a sacred ground that used to be the, uh, you know, what they call the slave you know, slave quarters, you know, with the one of the so-called plantation. You know, so to not have a church built there. So we believe that people have been, you know, calling upon the name of the Lord on that, on that you know, ground for more than 100 years. So that's why we say 100 slash 370. Uh, you know, as soon as uh, black people were brought into this area uh, against their will, uh, that they have been, you know, calling upon the name of their God on that parcel of land. So it's uh, it's amazing how, you know, God, uh, you know, establishes his truth uh, as far as we are concerned. You know, the faithfulness of God is something that reminds us of uh, the strength that we possess and the hope uh, that the truth will always prevail. Uh, they they destroyed everything, but you know Macedonia Baptist Church, you know survived, you know survived uh, the you know the, the destruction and the displacement. So we're still there, you know, hundred plus years later, you know. So we are the only institution that reminds people of a community, a vibrant community that once you know, was on this portion of River Road in Bethesda. Oh, yeah, thanks for that. Thanks for that. I know that uh, it was referred to as the Invisible Institution uh, during the 18th and uh, 19th century. So uh, undoubtedly, uh, the place of resistance where African resistance had been plotted and had taken place. So uh, it undoubtedly is no accident that uh, Macedonia Baptist Church, uh, until to this day, is the site for uh, African resistance in Montgomery County and in Bethesda. So thanks for that. We wanted to ask you, Marsha, what are the demands that y'all are putting forward now? If the listeners wanted to support this effort, how could they get involved and reach you to learn more? Thank you. The demands are fairly simple. Um, give us the land. It's a very simple demand. Give us the land. Um, it, it boils down to land ownership. Um, we believe the land should be, be returned back to Macedonia Baptist Church, which is the sole surviving Black institution in Bethesda. And with that land, Macedonia intends to build a museum to have an an institutional voice in this community to tell the stories that we've just started learning about through our research. And as also, we'd like to give our ancestors a proper burial. So we'd like to turn that area where the bodies are underneath a parking lot into a sacred space so that people can visit that area and ponder what these Africans, particularly the little African girls that I, I spoke about earlier, what they endured and their resilience in deciding not to die, but to live instead. So people can go to our website at BethesdaAfricanCemetery.org 
We're also on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. That's the easiest way to reach us is, is through social media. You are listening to the People's War Radio Show, produced by WBPU Black Power 96.3 FM in St. Petersburg, Florida. Our guests today were Marsha Coleman Adebayo and Reverend Sagoon Adebayo. WBPU is a project of the African People's Education and Defense Fund, a nonprofit organization whose mission is to defend the human and civil rights of the African community and address the grave disparities faced by African people in education, healthcare, and economic development. For more information on the African People's Education and Defense Fund, visit 8PEDF.org. Episodes of the People's War radio show are available on the Black Power Talks podcast on wubp.podbean.com. For updates and resources to fight the coronavirus or to volunteer with Project Black Ankh, visit developmentforafrica.org. We'd like to thank our guests, Marsha Coleman Adebayo and Reverend Sagoon Adebayo for joining us today. We would also like to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in. Colonial virus is why I can't live. Colonial virus is why I can't breathe. Colonial virus, yo, that thing gotta go. We don't wanna have to deal with this virus no more. Down with the colonial virus. Down with the colonial virus. Down. Down with the colonial virus. Down.